Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. I'm sure for some of you, you're thankful uh, that we are past the Christmas season, that we are um, no more Christmas parties, no more gifts to buy. Um, but in many ways, the church continues to celebrate the season of Christmas and the significance of Christ's coming to us, that God came to dwell with his people in flesh and in blood. And so by way of um, our sermon this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2, 10 through 18, and, and in particular, look at the ways in which the incarnation um, meets us in our life and, and the significance of it in our, in our life today. So if you have your Bible, feel free to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, or you can uh, find the printed uh, sermon uh, passage here in our order of worship. Hebrews chapter 2, 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made fully human in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would be with the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here. May they glorify you in everything that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, some of you may have come across various articles, whether sports articles or news articles, that often try to li uh, list the important events or achievements that took place during the past year, or even in our case, the past decade. Uh, we are entering into the 20s. Who would have thought you were going to be living in the 20s? Um, I came across an article in the Chicago Tribune uh, that broke down this decade for the two Chicago baseball teams, the Cubs and the White Sox. Um, and it lists all the different numbers, the winning percentage, uh, the achievements, the playoff wins. Um, and as you can imagine, the, the biggest and most significant thing that has happened with either of these teams is the Cubs World Series and in 2016 that helped wipe away some of the grief of the first half of the decade. Um, you know, I also ran into a few other articles that list the most searched news stories, everything from the women's soccer team winning the World Cup, uh, the destruction of the Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, and Hurricane Dorian, which devastated much of, of the Bahamas. 
it's hard to believe that all these things happened within this year, um, but they did. And I start with this, this point that to kind of paint a picture for us that often what these news, news articles are doing, we often do within our own lives, especially when we enter into periods of transition, the end of the year, the end of a season in our life, the end of a, of a decade. Um, we usually come to the end of the year and reflect on major events or happenings that occurred within our life. The end of the year can be a, a reflective time to look on what has happened in the last year and to look forward to what will come. The end of the year not only gives us time to reflect upon the joys and the high points of the year, but we're also confronted with, with the low points as well. We come face to face with our failures and our frustrations through the year, big plans that we may have had for ourselves that didn't come to pass, where we are in our career and our vocations are not where we imagined that we would be at the beginning of this decade or at the beginning of this year. We experience grief, uh, not seeing change in our marriages or in our families, in our communities, hoping and longing for change. And I don't know about you, but each of us in this room have just gotten a year older. Um, that has become pretty evident to me when I look into the mirror and I see gray hairs in my beard and I am experiencing the great recession of my hairline. Um, we can do our best to create better drinking habits or eating habits. We can tell ourselves that we're going to become more organized and committed to our careers and our families and our marriages. And we can even seek others to help us in that. And all of those are good things. Don't, don't hear me wrong on that. Yet, even if we stay committed and driven to these things, we continue to experience frustration with our limitations and with our shortcomings. We experience loss of loved ones, frustrations in our jobs, and even the prospect of being one year older. When we are confronted with these difficult years or seasons, it can leave us feeling dry and empty, oftentimes feeling like we're in a wilderness in our soul. We're looking for anything to go right when it seems like oftentimes things are falling apart around us. And oftentimes it's tempted to fall into despair, uh, to become hardened or even apathetic or indifferent in our lives. And so we're, we're left with questions. Where is, is there any hope? Is there any help? Or is this as good as it's going to get? And the, the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is writing to a Christian community. They lived 2,000 years plus before us. Um, far removed in many ways culturally from us, but in, in some ways experience the same questions. Is there hope? Is there help in the midst of where we find ourselves? In some ways, their lives actually got harder as they started following Jesus. And so they were left with a question, is this really worth it? And without giving you a long summary of Hebrews, I'll give you the short sentence. What he's wanting to convey to them is that Christ is better. Christ is sufficient. He is the better Moses. He is the better covenant. He is the better high priest. So the author reminds us today that our hope and our help to which we hold on to is not rooted in wishful thinking or abstract theories or self-help guides, but rather our hope and our help comes to us in flesh and blood. Our hope and help is not rested in pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and suffering alone, Rather, our hope rests in God coming to us in flesh and blood, 
not leaving us out in these wilderness and these deserts. But why did God have to come in human flesh? Why did he come to bear our nature? Why does it say not only that, but in our passage that it was fitting, that it was right that he should come? The reason is quite simple and yet beautifully mysterious at the same time. God comes to us through the incarnation. God comes to us in flesh and blood to lead us home, to lead us home, to bring his sons and daughters back to glory. God sends the one who is the light to lead the way back. I love, there's this Greek word in the text, archegon. I think I'm saying that correctly, archegon. And our, our translation, what we read, says founder, founder of salvation. But it also has meanings like pioneer or champion, a pioneer of our salvation, the champion of our salvation. I love that word because there's so much rich imagery with it. The founder establishes the means and the ways of our salvation. The pioneer enters into the mess, goes before us, hedges the way through the dark forest before us. And the champion, if you could imagine, is the one who is standing in front of the army, standing in front of his people, fighting on their behalf. So Christ goes before us as our champion. He's qualified as our champion, our pioneer. He suffers for us and was humiliated on our behalf so that we may live. But pulling all these images together, one, one thing for us to consider is, well, how does this apply to our lives today? Where does the incarnation come to us now? And I think there's three ways in which the text does this for us. One, it restores our status as sons and daughters of God. It removes a shame. Two, it frees us from the fear of death. It addresses death, that question that looms over all of our lives. And three, it helps us in our time of need, when we are confronted and in need and find ourselves in crisis. The incarnation meets us in all three of these places, and I think the text shows us this. So first, restores our status as sons and daughters of God. How is this even possible? How can he call us his brothers and his sisters? We're told in this passage, it says that the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And if you look at the Greek, it basically is saying all are of one. All are of one. Maybe a better way of understanding this is to say that Jesus, the one who comes to suffer in order to make us holy, and we who are broken and sinful, are sharing the same family. We share the same family. We are brought into the same family. Our champion goes before us, he who was made perfect through suffering, who through his death saved us from death. This, this champion came, and he calls us brothers and sisters. In our text, there's three Old Testament quotations that are quoted, and I like to think of them as, as supporting or even amplifying the intensity of what the author is saying here. Before these texts, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us, to call us his brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed to associate with us, and this is even made more powerful when one of the quotes comes from Psalm 22. It's a very famous psalm. It's a messianic psalm. It's the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet at the very end of that psalm, Jesus 
can also quote and say, I am not ashamed to call them my brothers and my sisters, the very same people who have put me on this cross to die. God forgive them, for they do not know what they have done. These quotations are not just proof texts to support Jesus' brotherly uh, affirmation for his people, but they're a cry, they're a praise that Jesus reassures us of our place with God and in his family. Jesus is the good brother who is not ashamed of his brothers and sisters, but boldly calls them his own. And maybe by way of contrast, I can give a brief story from my own life. I was the oldest brother in my family, and my younger brother would always leave his box of homework. And the one time, after the 10th time he's done this, uh, he had to get his homework done that night, but he left it, and uh, he was sitting in the back of the car, and we were already pulling away from the pickup line, and so I had to run in because we also had to get somewhere to go get his box, and I remember just being embarrassed and not wanting to be associated with him, just trying to get in as quickly as I could to get the box and to get out of there, but that is not the disposition that Jesus has with us. When Jesus comes to us in flesh and blood, when he died for us on the cross, he comes not reluctantly, not embarrassed, but he comes and says that we are his. We are his brothers and we are his sisters. So we see first that Jesus is not afraid to stand at a distance from us. He actually draws near to us to call us our brothers and sisters, to restore to us our identity as sons and daughters of God. But then second, we see the incarnation actually frees us from the dominion and fear of death. The incarnation frees us from the dominion and fear of death. The significance of the incarnation is not wrapped up in God's plan to save us, is wrapped up, sorry, is wrapped up in God's plan to save us from ourselves and death, now, yes, the incarnation uh, brings glory to God, and yes, it fully reveals Jesus, but the primary heart of the incarnation, the primary heart of God taking on our very nature is to restore our life to us, to restore us to himself, to restore our humanity. But why? Why did he do this? Well, one, we are in bondage. We're not capable of saving ourselves, and we die because of the ramifications of our sin, and we see this in Genesis 3 in the garden. And yet, God is the one who can swallow death. God is the one who can destroy it, and yet we're left with a problem. If God cannot die and we cannot restore ourselves, then we're left in a predicament. And yet, God comes to us. And the best way to summarize this maybe is to quote a, a better theologian than myself, is John Calvin. He, he reflects on this incarnation, this mystery that God comes to swallow death, to destroy it by taking on human flesh. He says, since neither is God alone, can he, that is Jesus, feel death, nor is man alone, can he overcome it, he couples human nature with divine, that to atone for sin he might submit the weakness of one to death. And that with wrestling with death by the power of the other, he might win victory for us. It was not only fitting for Christ to suffer, but to humble himself to share in our humanity, to take part of our flesh and blood. 
Jesus did not do this just so that he could sympathize with us, so that he knew what a scraped knee was like, or he knew what a hungry stomach felt like. Jesus did this to address death itself. Death itself. Maybe one way to illustrate this a little better is um, you all probably remember the story of when the Thai soccer team found themselves trapped in a cave filled with water. And it, what amazed me about the account, and I think what amazed so many other people, was one, the amount of energy and effort and manpower that it took to save these young boys and these soccer players. But then two, the fact that these rescuers had to go themselves into the cave. They could not just drop a line down and say, grab the rope and come with me. No, they actually had to go down there and bring the boys back. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what we encounter with the incarnation. God had to come in human flesh. He had to come to us. He doesn't just drop a line down and say, grab it. He actually comes and brings us to himself. And he did this to restore us, to restore creation, to restore us to our rightful place so that we could be creators and an artist, so that we could use our resources rightly. So we see that God restores us as sons and daughters. He frees us from the fear of death. And I think this leaves us with the question, well, so what? So what? How should this change the way that we think about our lives when we reflect upon our past events, when we find ourselves in the midst of temptation? And I think the author ends the passage with that note. If God came to restore our identity, if he came to free us from death, then how much more power and ability does he have to meet us in our temptation, to meet us in our crisis? We so often seek other places and other people to address our problems and our fears and our temptations, and yet God sent himself, he himself came to give us strength in the midst of all of that. God came to share in our flesh in order to restore our humanity. God cares for our bodies and our bodily actions. And the author reminds us that Christ suffered when he was tempted, and he is able to help us when we are tempted. When difficult times come in our life, it's very easy to lose hope, to fall into despair. Sometimes it's tempting just to even become apathetic. It's easier to just make excuses and to push the blame elsewhere. And sometimes we just lose hope that we can even change. And yet we see in Christ our high priest, he comes to us and he knows the full weight of the brokenness and sin of this world. We see this in his own temptations and his baptism after, when he goes into the wilderness after his baptism and in the garden of Gethsemane. Um, Christ's humanity experiences the same temptation as we did. Adam and Eve experienced it in a lush garden with everything that they could wish and hope for. Christ experienced it in a burdened desert with nothing around him, and yet he had his Father with him. Our temptation is to fall into despair and hopelessness, and yet Christ is our pioneer and our champion who lights the way forward for us. So as we close, I, I, wanted, I, I hinted at this at the beginning of the sermon, but by way of kind of pulling this all together, the incarnation is a great reversal that has happened to us. In the garden, man fell into sin, man fell into temptation, death, and shame. And yet in the incarnation, we see Christ reversing it all. 
Christ is removing our shame, bringing us to himself, calling us sons and daughters of God. Christ enters into death itself to bring us out of the cave and bring us back home. And no longer does temptation have to have the upper hand in our life because Christ is our help and our strength in time of need. So as we reflect upon this past year, as we reflect upon this decade, as you do that, as I do that, let us find our hope and our help every way in the one who has come to us. Wherever you may find yourself in your walk of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, cling to this real hope for lasting change. A hope that does not rest upon ourselves or our families or our friends that we would change or that they would change. A hope that does not ultimately rest on governments and political parties. A hope that ultimately comes to us in flesh and blood. A hope that has become the founder of our salvation through suffering. No one, I cannot and you cannot, predict what the future may have for you and for me, what unforeseen difficulties lay before us, what joys wait to be experienced, what pains or losses we may endure. However, we can rest knowing that we have a God who has come to us. He has entered into our suffering. He has entered into our pain. He has entered into death itself so that we may live. He is not ashamed of us, who he has wonderfully made and more wonderfully restored. He has so committed himself to share in our lot and bear our nature. So let us not despair. Let us not give way to apathy, but rather let us rejoice in this mystery of the incarnation and hold fast to the reality that heaven has come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus restores the dignity of our humanity by taking on our nature to restore us back to himself and to bring us home. So in light of this Christmas season, in light of families heading home, and in light of uh, the joys that come and the sorrows that come, let us hold on to the fact that God has come to us and drawn near to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time to hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would come to us, that you would meet us in the midst of our temptation and despair. Remind us that you are the one who's blazed the way before us so that we may live. We pray this in your name. Amen.